anyway, uh, my name is Carol and I'm an alcoholic. So uh, yeah, okay. I was born in Calgary and uh, some of you may not know where that is, but it's, um, here's an, a clue to as to what growing up might've been. It's they're always bragging about the fact that it's home to the world's largest rodeo. And um, so yeah, a lot of rednecks is the point I'm making. And my family wasn't from there. My family was, um, my mom and dad were from Toronto. And um, you know, in the sixties, there was one of those times where I don't know, you know, in Canada, you see this large exodus of people going from the east to the west following uh, the economy and the boom and bust cycle in Calgary because another thing it's known for is oil. It's an oil rich, well, it was oil rich. Uh, they pretty much sucked most of it out of the ground. But um, anyways, uh, my parents were both running. I recently, I'm, I'm taking a degree in psychology. So I, I recently did a, um, I call it a genogram. So it's like your ants, it's like your family tree, but uh, from a psychological point of view. So uh, yeah, they were both definitely on the run from their families. And um, you know, my, my ancestors are Irish and there was a lot of trauma in, uh, on my dad's side of the family. Uh, we had, uh, my, my grandmother lost four brothers over 10 years and we were all traumatized from leaving Ireland and all the things that happened to them on the way and when they got here. And so there was a, a addiction, unbelievable addiction. They were all addicted. They all died in strange accidents. One shot himself by accident hunting. One, I don't know, the church record said committed suicide in an insane fit. Anyways, when I recently did this genogram, I, I, I realized, wow, you know, I, I have my own trauma in my life, but I came into the world with my ancestors' trauma. And I, I never saw that before. It was fascinating to me. And, and I have a lot of forgiveness for my parents, but it, it helped me forgive them even more. But my father, uh, he, he had all of that and he had a drinking problem and he tried to quit drinking and he couldn't. And when I was six, my father committed suicide. And um, I remember the phone ringing that night and I remember getting a cold chill. And um, I don't know how I knew at the age of six to numb myself, but I did. I got the cold chill and I knew somehow that my father had died. And I, by the next morning, <clears throat> I had blocked that out emotionally. Anyway, uh, we have a little brother, Michael, and my older sister, Leslie. And um, so here we are in this redneck town. And my, my mom uh, is now uh, a single mother in a redneck town in the early 70s. So <laughs> good luck. And um, my father's side of the family was very wealthy. Um, so that, you know, kudos to my ancestors for that. My great, great grandfather came here with nothing and built up a massive fortune. There's still buildings in Toronto that he helped build, helped mortgage. He was incredible. So anyways, they had a lot of money. 
And so, but my mom's side of the family, they didn't have very much money. And uh, so, you know, the rich side of the family comes in and buys us a house. And uh, so now we're a single mom family. My mom's a waitress, which she started that because when my dad was drinking, she got a job in a lounge. And um, yeah, we're living in this, this very wealthy community uh, with a bunch of snobs. I don't know if you've met people that have the snob and redneck thing in one, but they're not nice people. <laughs> and anyways, um, so my the, the rest of my childhood and adolescence was awful. And I just never fit there. I remember my mom telling me for weeks, getting so excited, we're going to the rodeo and everyone knew that I loved animals. So they're like, Carol's gonna love this, you know? And, and we're sitting in the rodeo and the first thing that happens, the guy's out of the gate and he lassoes a little calf, a little baby calf. And, and he starts like torturing it. And I'm just like in tears. I'm the only one at the rodeo and, and just bawling my eyes out. How can they do this to this poor animal? And, and you know, my family's reaction is, oh, she's so emotional. And that's the, the way my whole childhood and adolescent went. And horrible things happened. Horrible things. My mother uh, dated horrible men. She had no idea of safety. And, and she wanted a husband because the only way to sort of become legitimate again in this crazy community that we lived in was to get a husband. So I've been through every kind of abuse you can imagine. Um, yeah, the the worst I think is when I was thirteen. One of her boyfriends would uh, force me into human trafficking, and uh, that's when I started drinking. When I start drinking by choice, it was forced on me. And um, anyways, when he finally left, my mom my mom kicked him out. But my family didn't really know what was happening with me. My mom would be at work and I would they would just drag me out of the house in the middle of the night. And my family didn't know. Um, anyways, my mom kicked him out for other reasons. Um, after that, I was so traumatized and so addicted to alcohol and drugs that um, I just continued on. And, um, I, you know, I would try, I tried to get through high school, but I just kept, you know, I remember being told, well, you've missed 30 classes in each thing that you're taking. So, you know, we have to kick you out um, or I drop out, whatever. And um, when I was uh, 18, my sister had met somebody in Toronto, a guy, and she wanted to come live in Toronto. And um, she asked me if I wanted to go with her. And at first I thought that was a stupid idea because I didn't want to leave all my my great life. <laughs> and over a couple of day, few days, I realized if I don't get the fuck out of here, I'll probably never have a life. So I came to Toronto with her. And um, that was, an interesting year. I was 18 and I had never tried to limit my drinking. So, you know, and I'm living on my own with my sister. I had to get a job. I had to pay bills and stuff. And so I, I started to try to only have two glasses of wine. 
And um, that only worked once. And to this day, it's still one of the worst nights of my life. Because all I think about, I sat there after having those two drinks, uh, feeling like uh, I want another one and just fighting that all night long. So um, then I went out one night with a friend after a year of this trying to control my drinking. And um, I was just a horrible person that night. I was, they dragged me out of the bar before last call because they knew what I was like and they didn't want to deal with it. And so because they dragged me out, I was, uh, this was a guy that I was dating and I was, I was driving on a, on a busy road and I kept trying to steer the, you know, take, push the steering wheel and so that he would drive into oncoming traffic. So he kicked me out of the car. And the next day, um, the next day when I woke up, I think that's maybe the first time I ever felt like, um, there's, well, I, I always felt like there was something wrong with me. But I was scared of my drinking for the first time, like really scared. And um, so I, my, my sister said something to me. My friend that I've been out with that night said to me, you are a really wonderful person um, until you drink. So uh, I, I went out on the balcony. We lived in a high rise and I went out on the balcony and I was thinking I should jump. And um, I don't know, a voice said to me, uh, everyone in AA thought it was God. I don't think it was God. I think it was my father speaking to me. Uh, that a voice told me to call Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I never really, I don't think I'd ever heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. So um, I called and this great lady named Iris told me she'd be around that night. This was in the 80s when AA was like so grassroots. It was fabulous. She just she just came on over and, and um, she did that for the next three months. She came and picked me up all the time, took me to meetings. Um, she sat in the car with me for hours, just talking. And um, I relapsed once, and then that was it. I got, I got sober. And uh, that was actually out in Mississauga, a little suburb outside Toronto. And, and then um, I decided to go back to school. Uh, so I moved in with my grandma on my mom's side. She was living here in Toronto and uh, I went back to school and um, joined a group in Toronto called the Hill Group and um, it was a fabulous group. These were nice people. I had I had no idea. I had this education that I, I was going back to school but I got into a university and if, as long as I did okay the first year then I would get all of my high school updated and I could go on and take whatever I wanted in university and I had no idea what I was doing I didn't know how to write an essay I didn't know how to I don't know how to do shit and um this the hill group is still to this day known as this, they, they call it the Hollywood of AA in Toronto and uh, but there were smart people there was a, a journalist there and and I ended up eventually going into journalism his name was Ray and um they would sit with me and tell me how to talk to my professors, tell me of the things I would have to know. Um, 
yeah, these, these people really helped me. So uh, I, I, my dream when I came to Toronto, uh, well, my dream from the town of a little girl, one of them was to be a writer. And so uh, I had this English professor, very nice man. He was a really well-known Canadian author named Eric Wright. And um, he, he knew that I wanted an A in his class. And he gave me a B plus plus. And so, and th these people at the Hill Group, whenever something like that would happen, they'd say, well, you gotta go talk to him. You gotta go ask him why. And I'd be like, no, no, I don't wanna talk to him. And they'd be like, nope, you gotta go, you gotta go. <laughs> so uh, I went to see him and I said, B plus plus, that's an A, what, what are you doing? He said, um, well, you see, I'm a writer and I don't meet very many good writers. And then he read me a couple of sentences from an essay that I had done. And he said, see, that's, that's really good writing. You don't see that very often. He said, the problem with you is that you have this gift and you, you're not applying yourself as much as you could. It's a waste. So until you apply yourself, and you know, when you grab a word out of the thesaurus, you got to look it up. You got to, you know, he told me all this stuff I have to do. He said, then, then I would give you an A. And um, then he said, what are you going to do now? You know, you got, you got good marks. So you can go take whatever you want at this university, which is Ryerson. And then I just started to cry and <laughs> said, I don't know. I've been praying for 30 days like you're supposed to. And he was just like, what is this woman talking about? Um, he said, listen, go, go apply to the journalism school. And I said, oh, my God, no, they're not going to let me in there. They're not going to. And he said, well. Just do it as a favor to me. Go throw your name in the hat. And I, I, I got in. I, I still, still, uh, yeah, it's still is some really something to me. Um, so I went to journalism school and I did really well. And then I got a job. And sobriety was amazing, and it was the eighties, and. Um, even mainstream AA wasn't like AA is today. There wasn't much dogma. People, people were like, yeah, you don't believe in God. That's fine. You know what? You can believe in this. You can do that. You know? And we just talked a lot. There was no big book, yada, yada, yada. It wasn't like that. Um, so anyway, I went to Africa for a year. Once I finished school, I went to Africa and I'm freelancing. And I caught some illness. I don't know. I still don't know exactly what it was. So when I came back to Toronto, I was really sick and um, couldn't couldn't find work because I was too sick. And so I went back to Calgary to stay with my mom until I would get better. And um, she took me to a naturopath, and he figured it out, and I did start to get better. And then I started to get jobs. I got an offer. Uh, a newspaper. And up to this time, I had blocked everything out that had happened to me in Calgary. I didn't remember it. I mean, I, if you understand post-traumatic stress, you understand how that happens. But um, this one newspaper where I was working, I was getting, um, I was getting hit on a lot. And um, I eventually got fired because I wouldn't sleep with this editor. And that 
it was like a floodgate. It opened everything. All of a sudden, you know, I'm seven years sober and I'm suicidal because I'm having these flashbacks and I'm I just like, what what the hell? And so I went for therapy and I went to group therapy and you know, the, the idea was that I would go to Calgary for about two months and get better and then back to Toronto. But here I am in Calgary and just get just one thing after another. It's happening and I can't leave. And so then I met a guy and I got married and I had two daughters. And AA in Calgary was never my favorite anyways, but, we, you know, we see this trend towards right-wing fundamentalism in AA and I'm going through trauma memories and I'm going to meetings and I'm getting more and more angry at the stuff I'm hearing and whatever whatever so around yeah about the 10-year mark my meeting attendance started to wane and by 12 years I was like I'm I'm not going to these meetings anymore I can't stand this I'm gonna you know my head, my my head's gonna spin off my neck and hock itself at the wall. <laughs> I gotta get out of here. Um, anyway, uh, I ended up going through another really serious trauma. I was about, well, I was fourteen years old, and um, I drank again. And um, I thought, you know, if it doesn't work out, that's okay. I'll just go back to AA. Not realizing, well, you hate AA, <laughs> so that's probably not going to work. And you're older. I didn't. I didn't even. I don't even know if I knew that. But the old, the older you get, especially females, the harder, the harder it is to get sober. Anyways, so uh, the the trauma was my my spouse, a very abusive man, and surprisingly so. You know, he's a He's a chairman at a university and he can sure put on a good act. Anyway. So uh, that started my, I, I mean, I never, I, I continued, I started going back to AA and I never stopped. But I couldn't get sober and um, I go in and out. And not in and out, I mean, stopping going to meetings, just, you know, in and out drinking. And at first it was long periods, you know, uh, I don't get six months, or eight months, and I go out. And I didn't, I didn't know and really, nor did a lot of people around me have any knowledge about the connection between PTSD and addiction. Anyways, I eventually found a psychologist who, who did understand that and she, she helped me. Um, she told me I had to leave Calgary. She said, um, it's just too many traumas here. So every time you're walking around a corner, your nervous system gets fired. And most of the time you relapse and you can't even catch it. Now, all these years later, I can look back and see how she was right. I couldn't see it at the time, but um, I couldn't make that connection. So I, uh, it was very hard. I was divorced at this point, but I had to... I think I went to court three times to get the right to move. I couldn't believe it in the early 2000s, but, you know, I had to <laughs> fight such a thing um, with this seriously abusive partner. I need to leave and get the hell away from him. But anyway, 
I um, I just knew deep down that that was that that was a human right, and eventually it would work out, and it did. And I moved, and I came back to Toronto, and I didn't get silver right away because I I'm a journalist, and I was working these crazy overnight and day and morning shifts, and finally I realized, okay, that's part of the puzzle too, and I stopped doing that, and I took three months off work, and that was 2012, and uh, I, I was 14 years in and out trying to get sober. That was it. Finally, was able to stay sober. So I just celebrated nine years on the 23rd of April, which is. <laughs> And on April 22nd, I'm going to cry for sure. Um, my little brother, who is uh, also got PTSD and addiction. I've been trying to get that little fucker sober, <laughs> even when I wasn't sober. You know, this has been going on for years, and people would say to me, He's loving detachment, you know, you have to do, you have to just leave him alone. And, and I'd be like, I'm not going to take advice from oppressed women in the 30s on this. You know what? I'm just going to leave that home. <laughs> I'm going to keep trying to help my little brother. And uh, my sister has finally gotten involved too. And we did an intervention, I don't know, uh, beginning of April on Zoom with his wife. And he went into treatment on April 22nd. So, um, you know, that's my motto in this program. You just never give up. You just never give up. And I don't know if this will be it for him, but you know, he's uh, been saying to me for years, leave me alone, you're an AA bully, <laughs> shit like that. But um, before he went into treatment, he said, um, you were bang on, you were bang on. So yeah, that's one of the, I guess we're on to what it's like now. And that's one of the things that's just, um, I'm so grateful for lately. Um, I, uh, what was it like today? Well, I don't really want to be a journalist anymore. And it's not because I don't want to be a writer. It's because it's such an abusive industry and um, I've actually taken my employer to the Human Rights Commission and I'm still waiting on that. It was, we were supposed to go to mediation last month. They continue to bully me and whatever, or attempt to bully me. They, what, what happened was they took away my seniority because of when I went off for treatment for addiction. So I went off in 2012. I've been with the court for, I don't know, 25 years. And I said, well, but you took that break. That's just a weird way they, they backdate these things in the modern world, death of unions and everything. But in my case, they said, we're gonna take your seniority because you took that, that time off. And I said, well, you know, you, you can't do that because I took that time off to go for treatment for alcoholism. And they were like, yeah, we don't care. 
And I went to the union and they're like, yeah, we don't care. And I just, uh, you know, I went in circles with these people, continuing to tell them parts of my story. This is in 2017. And they just kept saying, yeah, we don't care. And I traumatized myself by trying to get them to listen to me. And anyways, I went off work uh, because I, one of the final emails I got from them by that point where they said they're not gonna do anything. I was so traumatized, I thought I might drink. And so I called the treatment center where I had gone in 2012 and, and the therapist got on the phone and said, all right, you gotta go off work. And um, I did, and I didn't drink. The state's over. And I took them to the Human Rights Commission and it's still ongoing. But it, to me, I, I don't like, here's, here's the interesting thing. The deadline for mediation this time was April 22nd. So on the day that I took my last drink, they're saying, no, we're not gonna mediate. And I don't know, just the fact that it happened on the 22nd, I was like, you fuckers are so stupid, I'm gonna win. I'm gonna win. I mean, there's just no way around this. You can't do that. You think you can bully me and scare me by, playing these games and I know I'm gonna manage somehow long it take. And um, you know, I think given everything that I've been given in AA and that I can come to a meeting at any time and have hundreds of people, I just feel like I owe it to AA to stand up for myself and for other addicts and say, you cannot take away, you cannot punish us and you cannot stigmatize us anymore. And I, you know, if you, if you met, to me, if you met the 18 year old young woman that showed up at AA, broken in every way, unable to, you know, walk and I used to walk with my head down like this, terrified. And I, I'm not, you know, it's not like I'm not scared of what I'm doing, but I'm doing it and I don't walk with my head down and I won't, I won't give up. And I, I'm even thinking about writing about it maybe but it scares me but, um, to me that's a massive transformation i just moved to a little place outside toronto um my higher power since i got sober the second time has been my spirit animal the wolf and every day i become more and more uh connected with nature um and i'm taking a degree in counseling psychology and I want to somehow combine the two. I'm a behavioral therapist for dogs as well. <laughs> um, I'm gonna, I want to combine them all. I, I don't really know anything about my spirituality. It sort of happens in front of me. And then I go, oh, oh, that's, that's spiritual. It all is very much, like indigenous beliefs, but they're not. They're just, I'm just sort of adapting them as I go along as they present themselves to me. And um, I feel, I, I, when I was working with dogs a few years ago, I got Lyme disease. So I'm often, well, I'm often very sick and I'm doing aggressive treatment for it. But um, and because I have Lyme disease, I'm even closer and closer to nature because I take mostly natural um, herbs and stuff. 
So I'm learning even more about nature and I'm just starting to see, I, I think uh, I watched and I, I highly recommend it to anybody and everybody. I watched this documentary on Apple TV recently called The Year the Earth Changed. And it's a crew went and followed animals all over the world over the last year as we went into our homes what happened to the animals and in the whales are jumping for joy and their babies are living and the cheetahs their little babies can hear their calls so they're not dying and it was just like oh my god and you know so i'm so happy to be out of the big city and i just i sit here in my new place and i and i never thought i'd be like this but it's so quiet and i and i just listen just feel pure joy from how quiet it is um, yeah well, i hope that was a good start <laughs> thanks very much